Our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning is in Genesis 49 as we continue studying the latter portion here of Genesis. We've had a few breaks in between, but when we finish this in the coming weeks, Lord willing, we will have made our way through the entire book of Genesis in our morning services. We come now to Genesis 49, verses 29, uh, or starting at verse 29 in chapter 49, and read through chapter 50, verse 14. This is God's holy word as he gave to Moses to record infallibly uh, this portion of covenant history. And so let's attend to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and therefore inerrant word. Genesis 49, 29 through 50, 14. This is speaking of Jacob. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who were embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. And they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning, At the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite, as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. 
thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May the Lord bless its reading and its proclamation and its hearing. Back in chapter 47, Jacob had made Joseph swear not to bury him in Egypt. Rather, he said, let me lie with my fathers. Uh, We noted then that uh, he meant the tomb in the cave of Machpelah where Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, as well as Leah, had been laid to rest. Uh, Today we read that Jacob explicitly says he wants to be laid to rest in that very tomb. And from today's scripture we are uh, reminded of several things. One thing we're reminded of is the fact of mortality. Humankind is mortal. We are subject to death. Number two, the importance of faith. Jacob displays great faith in the Lord. The third thing we're reminded of is the importance of thinking covenantally and generationally. We saw this before when Jacob made Joseph swear to bury him in Canaan. And then fourth, the importance of keeping one's word as Jacob's sons keep their word to their father. Moses says that after prophesying about his sons and blessing them, Jacob charged his sons, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephraim the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth, that is the Hittites. If we were uh, in any doubt about where Jacob wanted to be buried when he first spoke of this to Joseph, uh, there can be no doubt any longer. He's extremely specific, isn't he? Uh, That that cave, you know, that property where... Uh, we bought, or where Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite, from the sons of Heth, from the Hittites. The field that is, or the cave that is in that field, that's also called Machpelah. That's where I want to be buried. The cave of Machpelah near the oaks of Mamre, uh, near Hebron, Hebron uh, where uh, Abraham had bought this property from Ephron the Hittite in which to bury Sarah. And there later, Abraham himself was buried, and then Rebekah, and then Isaac, and then Leah, most recently. Now, there are a couple of possible points of confusion with which we need to deal, lest doubters accuse us of glossing over difficulties in the scripture. The first difficult point has to do with Joseph's statement to Pharaoh, to Pharaoh's household, saying that, would you plead with Pharaoh for me? In chapter 50, verse 5, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Well, the cave was already there. Uh, Jacob didn't dig it. It was there in Abraham's day. Abraham didn't even dig it. It was already a cave. Uh, It could just be that Joseph is is giving a quick uh, sort of report uh, not explaining details. His brevity might be misleading, but he's not actually trying to deceive. 
that could be what's going on, but it's really not too difficult to figure this out. Which, When, when ancient uh, Hebrews laid their loved ones to rest in a cave or in a tomb that had been already carved out, they would dig or carve shelves into the walls of that cave. And Jacob had dug a shelf in the cave of Machpelah to be his own resting place, it seems, uh, probably around the same time that he had buried Leah there. The other point of difficulty is a little more challenging. Uh, when recounting covenant history before the Sanhedrin, as we read earlier this morning in Acts chapter 7, Stephen says, So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Shechem and the the city of the sons of Hamor uh, is quite a ways north of Hebron, where the cave of Machpelah is. Uh, There are a couple of ways of handling this. One is to say that Stephen was mistaken. Uh, The scripture of Acts is infallibly recorded, It's inspired by God so that Luke made no mistakes in writing it down, Uh, but that would mean that he might record accurately what someone says, even if that person is speaking mistakenly. So he certainly recorded accurately what Stephen said, but it may be accurately and honestly telling us Stephen said something which was incorrect. There are other places in the Bible where the words of men are recorded and those men are wrong about what they say. I can make a mistake while preaching a sermon, even though the scripture from which I'm preaching is the inerrant word of God. And maybe Stephen made a mistake in his sermon, and and that was infallibly recorded. Now, Acts 7.55 says Stephen spoke while full of the Holy Spirit. If that refers just to his statement about his vision of seeing Christ at the right hand of God, there's still no problem. But if it applies to his whole speech, we have to see if the facts can be reconciled, or we would have to admit the Bible was incorrect. But there's a simpler way of dealing with this. Stephen was using language familiar to the elders to whom he was speaking. And you'll notice that Acts 7.16 doesn't say Jacob was buried at Shechem, but they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb. Joshua 24.32 says, The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in a plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor. So Jacob bought land at Shechem where Joseph was buried. And it may well be that other patriarchs uh, were buried there as well. So that seems to be the antecedent of the they in, uh, in Stephen's speech. But also, so we could read that as saying they, as in our fathers, were carried back to Shechem, or they could also simply mean Joseph's bones That's plural too. Scripture specifically records Joseph's burial at Shechem because that fulfilled his deathbed request. When Stephen says Abraham purchased the land at Shechem, he he was using a way of speaking that would have been familiar to his audience, the elders of the Sanhedrin. Abraham purchased the land in a figurative sense when Jacob bought it. The people of Abraham bought it. So, Uh, Jacob was not buried at Shechem, but near Hebron in the cave of Machpelah, just as he requested, and Stephen wasn't specifically talking about Jacob's burial. Uh, 
Jacob's insistence that he be buried there was not mere sentimentality. We've noted this before. If he were being sentimental, he would have commanded his sons to bury him next to his beloved Rachel near Bethlehem. Instead, he wanted to be buried with Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, and Leah. And this displays his faith. But before we discuss Jacob's faith in this instance, let's note the fact that Jacob was acknowledging here. The fact of mortality. It's fitting that as we draw near to the end of the book of Genesis, we would be reminded of human mortality. In Genesis 2, God told Adam that he would surely die if he ate the forbidden fruit. In chapter 3, when Adam disobeyed the Lord, he told him, Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. In chapter 4, we then read of the first human death when Cain murders his brother Abel. And of more death when Cain's descendant Lamech commits murder. Chapter 5 lists the generations of Adam to Noah. And that genealogy repeats over and over again the refrain, and he died. And it says that of everyone from Adam down to Noah's father Lamech, except for Enoch, who was taken and died not. He was not, for the Lord took him. But everyone else in that uh, genealogy said, and he died. Death has reigned from Adam onwards. Here in chapter 49, verse 33, Moses tells us, and when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, He drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Notice, by the way, that common scriptural expression that Jacob was gathered to his people. You'll find that in several places. Gathered to his people or gathered to his fathers. Uh, Those who insist that the Old Testament teaches nothing of an afterlife ignore a great many facts, and this is one of them. This is one of just many. Moses only had to tell us that Jacob breathed his last. But the fact that he was gathered to his people is more than just a euphemism for being buried, like other people are, you know, you go go to the grave. Well, Jacob isn't even going to the grave yet here. He doesn't go to the grave for a few months, as things are counted here. Being gathered to his people implies that while Jacob's body lay there dead, some aspect of Jacob went on to join his ancestors. Nevertheless, mortality is a fact as long as this world lasts. Death is a fact. Should the Lord Jesus continue to wait, if the appointed day of his return is yet far off, Each one of us here will die. It's a sobering thought. Jacob made it to 147. You probably won't. So be ready. Not just by thinking about where you might be laid to rest, but about what your mortality means. Be prepared for your mortality. Job says, man who is born of woman is Few of days and full of trouble, he comes forth like a flower and fades away. 
He flees like a shadow and does not continue. Incidentally, the man in that verse means human being. It's the word Adam. Adam. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Mortality is a fact. It is appointed for each of us to die unless Christ returns first. Now, returning to the subject of Jacob's faith, the fact that he wants to be buried in Canaan with his covenant ancestors shows us a great deal. As Voss writes, uh, Jacob's concern that his mortal body be buried in the cave of Machpelah is not to be regarded as mere sentiment. Rather, this was an expression of a strong, unwavering faith in the divine promise of the inheritance of the land of Canaan by his descendants. They were not to remain in Egypt forever. Canaan, not Egypt, was to be their home and their inheritance. Jacob, just because he believed this firmly, wanted to be buried with Abraham and Isaac in the land of promise. In chapter 15, the Lord had told Abraham this sojourn in a foreign land would end. In chapter 46, he said to Jacob, I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. Jacob believed God's word. He believed that his people would be brought up again from Egypt. He trusted that God was both able and faithful to do what he had said he would do. Thus, in this passage, we see the importance of faith reinforced. And we also note that as Jacob displays this faith, he is thinking covenantally. He's thinking generationally. In one sense, it's not going to matter one bit to Jacob where he's buried. In body, he'll be dead. He won't feel a thing. He won't experience a thing. He won't know what's going on around him. In spirit, he'll be gathered to his fathers. As Ecclesiastes tells us, the the, the body returns to dust and the spirit returns to God who gave it. To use the language that Jesus later uses, uh, he will be in the bosom of Abraham. Well, what difference is it really going to make to him where his body is? But he not only wants to be in the land of promise and he might be thinking it'd be nice to when he raise, rises up on the last day to be there with Abraham and Isaac. That's nice. <coughs> but he wants his burial place, I think, also to be a testimony to future generations of the faithfulness of God. He's thinking of the fact that God is going to bring his people out of the land of Egypt to the land of promise, and he wants that to be where they can see his tomb. And so his burial place will be a testimony to future generations that God is a faithful God. God is a God who keeps his word. Moses goes on to tell us about how Jacob's sons fulfilled their word to him. So we see that it's important that we keep our word as well. Uh, Joseph, as the one with the political power, the son uh, who received the double portion of the firstborn, and so it's going to be his primary responsibility, he takes charge of the burial preparations. Now, embalming, you'll find, was not a common practice among the Hebrews either before or after this period. This is almost unique. Uh, there may have been some other Hebrews that got embalmed. We assume that Joseph probably uh, was and others had their bodies preserved, perhaps for being taken back to Canaan at a later time. 
But Jacob's body needed to survive this long journey. Moreover, being the royal vizier, Joseph couldn't just pack a bag and leave the next day. Arrangements had to be made. Preparations would have to be made for his absence. And, of course, he would need permission from the pharaoh if he was going to keep his oath to his father and not also offend his king. So he orders the physicians who serve him to embalm his father. As the ancient Greek historian Herodotus also reported, the embalming of someone of high status in Egypt required a minimum of 40 days. In fact, 40 is pretty much the minimum. 40 to 70 days was the range, depending on how high a status someone had. And the space reported here of that uh, time of mourning is that 70 days as well, you'll notice which is a space of mourning for someone of great status. So they're honoring him, no doubt, as the father of Joseph. The physicians who cared for bodies both before and after death uh, would remove the brain. It's an interesting thing to to think about that uh, when they did the embalming in ancient Egypt, they preserved the internal organs, but they didn't really care much for the brain. They didn't think it was all that important. Which is uh, interesting. We we know better than that now. The internal organs uh, would uh, then be removed from the torso and kept in separate jars called canopic jars. And uh, the inside of the body would be washed out, filled with spices and frankincense, and closed up, sewn shut. And then the body was... Uh, placed in a substance, was covered, buried in a substance uh, found in Egypt called natrum. And this substance would dry out the body. After 40 days or so, the body would be well preserved from decay. And so this is a process that, if you've ever seen an Egyptian mummy, uh, that mummy would have gone through this process. And in most cases, it greatly preserves the body. It's amazing that... uh, Bodies of people who lived 3,000, even 4,000 years ago are still intact. There's still muscle tissue there. There's still skin there. And it hasn't decayed because they went through this process. You can still see the, uh, yes, quite dried up, but the, the face of Ramses the Great, who lived about 1,200 years before the time of Christ. Well, during that time that the body was being dried out, the family and others would be in mourning over the passing of the one who died. Moses told us of how Joseph wept at the death of his father. But remember, as Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, we do grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. And Joseph has hope. After the customary period of mourning, Joseph obtained permission from Pharaoh to return his father's remains to Canaan. And so this large procession comes. And again, this shows you, I think this is mostly because of their love for Joseph. But this shows you how honored Jacob was. Because this procession included not only Joseph and his brothers, but Pharaoh's elders, all of Joseph's household, the elders of the land of Egypt, all the senior officials of Egypt escorted the body of Jacob to the land of Canaan. 
Apparently they followed what was the major highway of the day around the south end of the Dead Sea and it goes north, it was actually known as the King's Highway, uh, it goes north to the east side of the Jordan before then turning west to the crossings of the Jordan. So the, this would be uh, akin to the latter part of the wilderness journey of, of Israel generations later when they'll uh, come up uh, east of the Dead Sea, east of the Jordan, and then, and then come into the land of Canaan by crossing the Jordan River. There in the land east of the Jordan, they encamped at a place called the Threshing Floor of Atad. And the whole entourage remained there for seven days, grieving the death of Jacob. One final period of mourning. This was so notable that the locals renamed the place Abel Mitzrayim, because as far as they knew, these were all Egyptians there. Uh, that, that means uh, the tears or the mourning of Egypt. It could mean the meadow of Egypt also, with a slightly different translation, but, uh, but this seems to be focusing on their grieving here. The tears of Egypt. Mitzrayim means Egypt in Hebrew. The mourning of Egypt. So this was such a, a notable event that the locals kept calling that place from that point after the tears of Egypt. From there, the sons of Jacob go on. They cross the Jordan and come to the cave of Machpelah where they lay their father to rest according to his wishes. They kept their word to him. So by that example, we see the importance of keeping one's word. Unless to do so would force you to sin, vows, oaths, promises, covenants must be kept. The Lord holds you accountable to keep your word. So again, our lesson tells us, number one, the fact of mortality. It is appointed to us once to die, and after that comes judgment. Are you prepared? Secondly, we see the importance of faith. Do you trust God to keep his word, like Jacob did? Do you live as if you do? And then third, we see the importance of thinking covenantally and generationally. What are you doing for the good of future generations of believers so that they will know how faithful God is? And fourth, the importance of keeping your word. Do you keep your promises? Are you keeping your wedding vows, your covenant of communicant membership? When you keep your word, you actually are reflecting the character of the faithful God who keeps his word. And that becomes a testimony to your generation and future generations. And so you show that you're thinking covenantally by keeping your word. These are all important lessons from God's holy word to us this day. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be prepared for death, for we know that it is appointed to us to die unless Christ returns soon. Each one of us would pass from this earth. We thank you that death will not hold those who are in Christ any more than it could hold him. And we pray that we would live our lives now trusting in you and thinking covenantally and keeping our word that in all these things you might be glorified and that we might be a testimony to others of the faithfulness of the living God. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.